Hi there, it's great to be with you, even though in these slightly strange circumstances. If you've got a Bible, do you want to turn to Luke chapter 20? Luke chapter 20. On the night before he dies, one of the last things Jesus does before handing himself up for arrest is he sings a hymn. We're told that in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 26 and verse 30, that the Lord's Supper's just finished. And just before Jesus goes to pray and on the Mount of Olives and then give himself up for a rest, he sings a hymn. And we're not told by Matthew, but it's very likely that the hymn he sang was taken from the, what the Jews call the Hallel Psalms, which are Psalms 113 to 118, because the Jewish people sang those Psalms at Passover. That's what they were for. And so it's very likely that the last thing Jesus sang before giving himself up for a rest was Psalm 118, which is a beautiful song of deliverance about how God has stepped in, broken in, and rescued him from a terrible peril and difficulty. And I think that's a beautiful thing for Jesus to do right before he goes to save the world, is to proclaim and sing of the goodness of God. Phrases like Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's what Jesus is singing just before he died. Or I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me, verse 13. Or even this, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord, verse 17. So it's what Jesus is very likely singing the night before he dies. What an amazing saviour. And the most dramatic moment in that psalm, which Jesus sings the night before he dies, is actually comes right towards the end. And it's an extraordinary statement. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And it might seem odd, might feel odd, that at such a pivotal moment in world history, Jesus sings a song about stones. And it might seem even odder when you realize that it's not even a one-off, because five days earlier in the passage we're gonna read now, in Luke chapter 20, Jesus had quoted this exact passage as the punchline of his most offensive parable, the one that ultimately got him killed right in the middle of a chapter that's full of confrontation with Israel's leaders. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and it's the Lord's doing, and it's marvellous in our eyes. Let's read Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority? He answered them, I'll also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe him? For if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, they didn't know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people a parable. A man planted a vineyard, and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they'd give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. And this one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that's written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he'd told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness. And said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God's the things that are God's. And they weren't able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees who denied that there's a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother died, Having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second and the third took her and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterwards, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marriage, marry nor are given in marriage, for they can't die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you've spoken well for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how's he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. This is the word of God. It's a chapter of confrontations. It doesn't seem to matter what the subject is. It could be Jesus's authority or Israel's history or tax policy or the resurrection or just the way that leaders show off and pray for too long. Whatever it is, Jesus and Israel's leaders disagree about it. And in the midst of this chapter, that there is one line that pretty much sums up the difference between the way Jesus sees himself and the way that the scribes, the chief priests and the elders see him. And the line is in verse 17. What then is this that is written the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It is an unexpected punchline to a story that's basically about a vineyard. 
And it's a fascinating story in which, you know, there is an owner, he, he's, he's got tenants in a vineyard and he sends servants to get the fruit and the tenants keep beating them up and sending them away. And eventually he sends his son and his son is beaten up and killed so that the tenants might receive the vineyard. And the owner says, right, I'm going to get rid of these tenants and hand it over to somebody else. And so at the end of a story like that, you wouldn't expect the punchline to be about a rejected stone. You'd think it would be something to do with the son who has just been beaten up and killed. But the clever play on words that exists in Jesus' language, which doesn't quite translate into English, is at the heart of the, what Jesus is doing by flipping the story around. See, the word for son in Hebrew is ben, um, which you would still add Benjamin would be a name, which just means son of my right hand. The word for son is ben, and the word for stone is eben. And so when Jesus is telling a story about a ben, a son who gets rejected and killed, and then twists to talking about a stone, an eben, that gets rejected, everybody hears and goes, oh, the stone and the son are the same person. A rejected person who functions like a stone within Israel, who then, having been rejected, is highly exalted. And then, raising the stakes, Jesus brings in two other Old Testament passages about stones and he basically picks up on this idea that the son Jesus is not just the son but the stone and then he flips round our thinking on what the stone is and how the stone functions in the Old Testament by bringing in another two Old Testament passages to help explain what he why he thinks he of himself as the stone the builders rejected right so he quotes the if you like um he goes in verse 18 he says everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, this is now a really bizarre fusion of images. So he's in the first of those passages, the images of a rejected brick, right? The stone the builders rejected, the one, oh, that's no good, we'll throw that away, becoming the cornerstone, right? And that we can kind of get our heads around. But then the second quotation he's made, he says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. That's taken from Isaiah chapter 8, in which... It's a judgment prophecy in which the stone is the Lord himself, a rock of stumbling, a pebble in the shoe that's going to trip up lots of people and cause them to fall. And then he brings in yet a third passage from Daniel chapter 2, verse 34, in which the stone is the kingdom of God, which gradually builds into enormous scale and crushes all worldly empires before it. Like a giant hammer, it smashes them to pieces. So... He's used three different Old Testament passages, one of which pictures the stone like a, the, a brick that people go, that's not very good, and throw it out, but it becomes the foundation. Another one which describes the stone like a pebble in your shoe that you keep tripping over. And another one which describes the stone almost like this giant rock hammer that destroys everything before it. And that's weird. But what's weirder still is that Jesus is claiming to be all three of those stones in himself. And that's what he's doing by bringing these three different passages together. He's saying, that's me. I am the stone that the builders rejected that's become the cornerstone. I am, in Daniel's terms, the little stone, me and my kingdom, look little, little stone, that's going to gradually grow and grow and grow and then crush all worldly empires before it. And I am, in Isaiah's terms, I am the stone that is the Lord in person who will offend Israel, like getting a pebble in your shoe and cause a lot of people to stumble and fall but ultimately be lifted up. So Jesus, in this very dense punchline to a story about a vineyard and a son and a tenants, ends up describing the story of Jesus' own life in three stones. That God comes to earth 
offends people, causes people to trip up and stumble over him like a pebble, gets rejected by his people, but then gets exalted as the foundation stone of the whole new people of God, and then is given a kingdom that will fill the earth and crush all other worldly empires. But Jesus is using three Old Testament passages to say, I am the stone. And I am the, feel like my whole life, my whole mission is summed up in these three different Old Testament passages about stones. Now, in Jesus' world, that kind of play on words would kind of work in their language because they, they were familiar with the idea that the thing that you got caught in your shoe was the same kind of thing that you built buildings out of and the same kind of thing that might provide massive foundation stones for a huge structure. Because they were all the same thing. They were made of literally stone. But in our world, that kind of play on words doesn't work in the same way, which is probably one of the reasons it's a little harder to follow for us. We're thinking, well, hang on, a, a pebble, or it might be something you stub your toe on, a bit of gravel or grit might be the thing you get stuck in your shoe, and we build buildings out of bricks, and then we reinforce them and make them strong with concrete or iron girders or whatever it might be. So what happens when we hear these different plays on words is we think, well, these don't sound like they're talking about the same kind of thing. So we miss the language connection and often maybe even miss the point. So I wonder if it might be helpful for us to think for a moment about mangoes, to try and get Jesus's point here, the idea of this stone that has all of these different meanings, to think for a moment about mangoes. Mangoes are delightful, right? Everybody's in agreement with that. A mango is just a beautiful, sweet, just like you taste it and you think, yeah, this is, this is a sign of the new creation right here in the first bite of a mango. But in the center of every mango is a huge stone about two inches long. And it's as hard as granite. Like you bite into it, you seriously damage your teeth. It could be extremely painful actually if you weren't aware it was there. And there's this sort of huge stone run, and it's a really annoying shape. It's not like a peach where you can just sort of slice round it, open it out, remove the stone and eat. It's sort of this sort of hard, flat thing that sits in the middle and just ruins the eating experience when you're eating a mango. And it's fiendishly difficult to remove. So mangoes are so delicious that there are videos all over YouTube. You can go online and see them, uh, which give you these sort of careful demonstrations about how you can remove the stone from a mango and then slice it up like this and then turn it out like that and it looks like a hedgehog, apparently. Um, now, I've, in my experience, YouTube lies because I've tried that and it doesn't, never works. And even when it, in the video, it doesn't look like a hedgehog. I've seen hedgehogs before and they don't look at all like mangoes in my experience. But although we treat the stone as a nuisance, in other words, when you've got a mango, the main thing you're trying to do, first things first, get rid of the stone and then you can enjoy it. The stone is ultimately the most important part of the mango. Right? Because the flesh is something that once you eat, it's kind of gone. Whereas, of course, the stone is the seed. It's the life giver. It's the foundation for all future generations of little mangoes. Right? This is the only way that there are such things in the, as mangoes in the world. is because the mango doesn't just get eaten completely, but it preserves. They're like the, the hardest, most robust, strongest bit gets thrown out and then becomes the foundation of future generations. It is, if you like, when you first bite into a mango, it is what Jesus might call a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling that you damage your teeth on. And most of us looking at the mango are thinking, I want to get rid of this thing. I hate this thing. This thing's ruining my life and it's ruining my mango. And so we want to try and throw it out. But having been rejected, that stone then becomes the cornerstone, the future foundation of life and fruitfulness and abundance for all subsequent generations of mangoes. And Jesus is saying, that's Jesus. That's me. I am the one that people looked at 
and they damaged their teeth on and they were offended by it because he told stories like this. And they argued with him and they rejected him and they hated him and eventually they beat him and they killed him and they threw him out. But having been thrown out and died and given himself up, that stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone of an entirely new family of God stretching into countless generations and filling the whole world with fruit. And that's the stone symbolism in some ways in this story. It's this kind of weird fusion of three different Old Testament texts in which Jesus comes and says, yeah, I'm all three of those. And you need to see that the person you are now plotting to destroy is actually going to be vindicated and raised up as a result of the very actions against him you're now taking. And that's just in this one little text, right? So we just got this one three-line summary that he gives at the end of this passage in Luke 20. But if we now step back and consider how stones function in the Bible as a whole, you see, actually, stones have got a whole bunch of different things that they even mean that Jesus may also be picking up on in this particular passage. And if you, we could do a whole study just on how the way stones function in the Bible and all the different things they mean. Stones, for instance, in the ancient world would seal things. They would block people from getting in or block people from getting out. A stone was something that you would, for instance, put over the top of a well to stop animals from falling in. A stone was something that they put in the entrance to the lion's den when Daniel was inside to make sure that he couldn't get out. So a stone is like an ancient security door. It's a way of barricading people in or out in order to you know, protect it or something. So stones seal things. Stones build things, which is obvious from what we've seen. They build houses and altars and temples. You use a stone as the fundamental building blocks of the ancient world, like a brick. Stones memorialize things. This is something stones often do in the Old Testament. I mean, this is really, we don't have an equivalent for this in many ways. I suppose it would be the equivalent of a monument or an obelisk or something, but we don't really value them in our culture the way that they did in biblical times. But stones would be a memorial, and you get a lot of this in the Old Testament, where Jacob encounters God at Bethel. And then when he wakes up in the morning, he's, he's, he's been lying down on a stone as, a, as his pillow, and he wakes up in the morning and he says, surely... God was in this place and I didn't even know it. So he turns his pillow into a pillar and he says this stone now is going to be a memorial of what's taken place. That this is the house of God, the Bethel, and therefore I'm going to memorialize it so subsequent generations will know what happened here. It's what Joshua does at Gilgal. They cross the Jordan and he says, let's put a heap of stones as a reminder. God is faithful. The most famous one possibly is Samuel, when Samuel sets up his Eben, you remember Eben means um, stone, his Eben Ezer, his stone of help. They win a battle and he says, I'm going to set up a stone of help as a reminder that thus far the Lord has helped us. So when people wonder, is God going to save us? Is God going to be faithful to us? Is God going to get us through this crisis? In the Bible, people would look back and say, look at the stones. The stones cry out. You can go and see the stones at Gilgal or the stone at Bethel or the stone at Ebenezer and you could say, thus far, the Lord has helped us. That's what stones did. And stones, they seal things, they build things, they memorialize things. And stones also used in judgment. Now, this is a harder thing to think about, but a heap of stones would at times be raised over a person who had been judged by God, like Achan or Absalom. And that's why Goliath 
when he blasphemes the living God, David doesn't kill him. He says, I haven't killed you with a sword or a javelin or a spear. I've killed you with a stone. Because I want you to see that you have been judged by God for your defiance of the living God. That stones actually are a moment of judgment and that's why stoning was sometimes used and that's why even hailstones come down from heaven as an act of judgment in biblical books. Because it's also probably why Jesus famously said, the one without sin is the one who should cast the first stone because a stone was an act of judgment. And so stones carry a lot of meaning in biblical thinking that they perhaps don't in our world because we of course don't follow through the symbolism in the same way in our kind of 21st century London. But the most famous stone of them all, which sums up them, all of those meanings in itself, if you like, the most famous stone in history is the stone that wasn't there. Right? It's the stone that's more marveled at than these temple foundation stones. Look at these glorious things. And it's more marveled at and admired than Stonehenge and more mysterious in power. It's the stone that wasn't there. It was meant to be a seal, a security door. Right? Preventing anybody from getting in or out. I love um, you know, the American uh, writer Russell Moore has the, in his Bible. It's just great. And there's a line in Matthew 27, 65. He says, this is the most hilarious line in the Bible. And it's just the line that says, on, um, that Pilate's saying to the soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. And he just has it highlighted in his Bible and just writes in the margin, good luck with that. I love this idea that the stone that wasn't there was meant to be a seal. It was meant to be like something that would stop an animal falling into a well or would stop Daniel getting out of the lion's den. But instead of becoming a stone that was a seal, it ended up becoming the foundation stone on which the whole new world was built. It ended up becoming the Ebenezer, the stone that said, thus far the Lord has helped us, the stone of hope. The stone that subsequently generations would go back to the missing stone outside the tomb of Jesus and say, God has helped us. God's going to be faithful again because he always is. And actually it became a stone that executed judgment and it became a stone that effectively God threw at death itself and knocked death out square in the head and said, I have destroyed you with the stone that wasn't there. It was the stone that was cast to one side by the only person who truly did not have sin. And so as Jesus steps out of the tomb on Easter Sunday, rolling aside the stone, he is enacting somehow the idea that the one without sin has cast aside the first stone. And as the sun rose on Easter Sunday morning, the unmovable stone of death was rejected so that the stone of life whom the builders rejected might become the cornerstone, the mango stone, filling the, fruit, filling the world with fruit from that generation to this. And that, as Jesus and his disciples had sung two nights before, that is the Lord's doing, and it's marvellous in our eyes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this extraordinary image of Jesus as a person who gets cast aside in order to fill future generations of the world with life and hope, who in the very act of being rejected became all that we would ever need him to be. The stone that couldn't withstand the power of the resurrection life of Jesus and just got cast aside. The stone that causes people to stumble and to be offended by the 
confrontation Jesus brings into their lives. And yet when they come to see how glorious he is, they build their entire lives upon this foundation stone, this concrete, this unyielding rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming floods. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. We thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus. And we pray that even in this time of challenge and difficulty, you would sustain us by drawing us back to the stone that was rejected and has now become the cornerstone. Amen.